All right, Job chapter 1. We're going to be looking in the next weeks through the book of Job. And there's 42 chapters. We're going to take about three verses a Sunday. I'm joking. Some of y'all, some of y'all thought I was serious about that. We're going to be looking at a number of the truths through the book of Job. But we're going to do what God calls Satan to do in this first chapter. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And as we look at Job, I want to remind you that when we look at characters in the Old Testament, we never look at them just for their own sake. We look at them because they point us to a much more significant, more important, greater person than they ever were. They point us to Jesus Christ. And as we look at Job, as we consider Job, I want to see some truths that will point our hearts and minds toward God. In this first chapter, we will see Job reverent in suffering. Reverent in suffering. In the book of Job, there's much that we can learn. We can learn about the sovereignty of God. That even when, for example, even when Satan has malicious intent, God uses his ill purposes to accomplish God's greater purpose. Boy, that certainly points us to Christ. Peter said in the book of Acts, he said, He who by evil hands you took and slew, he said it was according to the foreknowledge of God. It was according to God's purpose. And so God's purpose supersedes all the malicious intent of Satan. Satan had evil intent against Job, but God is sovereign over that. It does tell us some things about Satan. We get a, probably a greater glimpse into the activity of Satan in the book of Job than we do anywhere else in the, in the Old Testament. It tells us about submission, the theme of submitting ourselves to God and submitting ourselves to His purpose and His plan in our lives. But I especially want to focus as we go through this study on the theme of suffering. Every person suffers. That's not being negative. I'm not a pessimist. Um, I, I tend to consider myself more of a realist than an extreme optimist or pessimist. I, I, I lean toward the optimistic side, but I've lived long enough that I also know that um, things don't always turn out well in the way that we expect them, the way that we want them. So there's going to be suffering in our life. It's going to be varying degrees of suffering. There are some who suffer greatly, and it seems almost continuously. And then there's other things that come into our life, and we suffer either personally or we suffer vicariously through someone that we care about. I firmly believe that sometimes the burdens we, care, we carry for those that we care about are heavier than the burdens we carry for ourselves. We see those that we love, and sometimes there are many of you who are caring for your loved ones who are going through suffering. We ask the question, why do we suffer? One of the things that I do want to point out to you in the book of Job is how we should be careful in judging another believer who is going through difficult times and who is suffering. We're often like the disciples in John chapter 9 when they saw the man that was born blind and they said, whose sin is this? There's automatically, we want to cast the blame. We want to find out this is the reason why. Whose fault is it? There's got to be somebody who's at fault for this taking place. I love the old story of the old farmer who's laying in the hospital bed. He's getting ready for surgery the next morning and he looks at his wife. John says, Alice, he said, We've been through a lot together, haven't we? She said, we sure have, John. He said, do you remember way back when we first got married and that tornado came through and it destroyed our barn and wiped out all our crops? You were right there with me. 
She said, I sure was, John. He said, it wasn't many years after that in the early 70s when a flood came through, and it not only took out all our crops in the barn, but it took out the house and our cars and everything but just us and the kids and the clothes on our back. And when we went through that, you were right there with me. She said, yes, I was, John. And he said, now here I am. I'm laying in this hospital bed getting ready to have a quadruple bypass surgery in the morning, and here you are right beside me once again. He said, doggone it, Alice, you're just bad luck. We try to find someone that we can blame for our faults, for we can blame for our, our tragedies, the suffering that we go through. There are times in life, and the Bible tells us this, let me just quickly share this, when a believer will suffer because of sin. God chastises his children. That is certainly true. He whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But that is not always the case. That should be something we evaluate and we consider. Lord, is this happening because of some discipline for misbehavior? Sometimes he is training for spiritual maturity. It is God developing spiritual maturity in our life. And this is why we must be very careful in looking at someone else's life and judging why they are going through what they're going through. Job's friends certainly got it wrong. Job's friends said, Job, if you had been living right, this wouldn't have happened to you. Chapter 1 tells us this behind-the-scenes thing that we see going on in heaven says it happened because Job was living right. There are times when suffering comes as an opportunity for God to be glorified by our faith. So when we look around, be careful before you judge someone. Be careful before when you see something bad or tragic happening, saying, oh, that's clearly the judgment of God. You may be standing with Job's friends, and you may be standing wrong. It may simply be because God is at work in their life and God is bringing glory through their life. For whatever reason, we will face varying degrees of suffering in this life. God calls on Satan to consider Job, and that's what I want us to do this morning. That's the purpose of the book, that through Job, we may know God in our suffering. That we may know God in our suffering. First of all, with me this morning, I want you to consider Job's testimony. What do we know about Job? Well, if you go from verse, these first five verses, these first, verse one tells us that he was, had moral success. He was a man who was upright. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. This man was perfect and upright. It means he was blameless. He was complete. He was mature. He was one that was without blame and one that feared God, and he eschewed evil. He hated that which was evil. We would say that's exactly what you would strive for in life. If you're looking for moral excellence, that is what you would strive for. Job was at the top of his game in this. Notice also his family's success as the world would look. In that day, if you had children, the more children you had, the more blessed you were. He had seven sons and three daughters. He has a full family. And he not only has a full family, but verses 4 and 5 tell us that these children from time to time would get together and celebrate and have family gatherings. They not only were his children, but they got along well and they loved each other, it seems. So things are going well on the family front. If you were looking from the, if you're looking from the horizontal view, if you're looking from the earthly view, everything is going well for Job. He was a material success. Verse 3 tells of his herds and his household. And it says at the end of the verse that this man 
was the greatest of all the men of the East. All of these things are success in what man can see. They can look and they can see that he's a moral man. They can see that he has a great family. They can see that he has great possessions. And he's not someone who has sacrificed his family to gain possessions. He is someone who is able to enjoy both of these. But what matters is not what others think about us. What matters is what God knows about us. And let me tell you that God knows exactly who we are. God knows the depths of our heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And there's folks who walk into church every Sunday. Man, they look good on the outside. And if you look at them, you might say, hey, they're a Job. But God knows the, God knows the heart. What does God say about him? Look down at verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil? Word for word, what verse 1 says about him. In other words, what Job appeared to be on the outside, he was on the inside. He had integrity. His outward living, the outward expression, his, his life was an outward expression of an inward reality. It's not important what others think of you. It's not important what you think of yourself. It is important what God knows. What others think and what you think is perception. What God knows is reality. And Job's testimony was he was blameless. This is what God said about him. But notice and consider with me also Job's test. What is the test that Job is going to face? There's a day... Verse 6 tells us, when the sons of God, or the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. We don't know, and I, I won't take the time this morning to delve into this, but we don't know exactly what kind of access that Satan has into the heavenly places. We know that he was cast out from a place of authority, but it seems from this passage that he has some form of access. I will tell you that whatever access he has is limited by the power and the authority of God. And even when he intends evil, God will bring it for good, as we'll see in this passage. What is the test? God says, have you considered Job? And, and Satan does what many people have done since and is sometimes true of believers. He says, well, does Job serve God for nothing? God, you've given him everything, you've blessed him, you've put a hedge of protection around him, and nothing can touch him, nothing bad can happen to Job. Of course he's going to worship you. He worships you because you do him good. But if you took all of that away, here's the, here's the test. Does Job serve God because of what God has done for him? Or does he serve God because God is worthy to be worshipped. Let me ask us this morning the same question. Do we serve God? Do we worship God? Do we honor God because of who God is or because of what He does for us? Is God worthy of my praise based on His nature and His character and His being? And the answer to that is yes, a resounding yes. Worship is rooted in who God is not what he has done for me. Now, yes, I give him thanks and I give him praise for all that he does for me, but he is worthy of worship because of who he is, and that is unchanging. So when we come to worship, I've heard people say things like this. 
I've heard, I've seen tragedy come into people's lives. I've seen suffering come into people's lives. And they'll say things to this. They'll say, Pastor, I've tried my whole life to be a good Christian. I don't understand why God's letting this happen to me. Do you catch the bartering that's going on there? Now, I don't doubt that they are a godly person. They love God and they intend well. But the heart of that is, I serve Him, so God owes me. God owes you and I absolutely nothing. If He owed it to us, it is no longer grace. And so this idea of, I'm going to do right so that God will do good by me. I'm going to put my money in the plate so I'll get back more and I'll be rich. And I'm going to come to church so I'll have protection from all these other things. And here's Job, and that's really the test. I've done all these things. Will God, will Job continue? Will he worship God? Satan's motivation is malicious and evil, but ultimately his quest, Satan's quest, will be used to bring glory to God. It's necessary for the entire universe to see that God is worthy of worship. His worth is not dependent on his gifts. And God is getting ready to demonstrate that through the life of Job. It's the same line of thinking that's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, through manifold sufferings and testings. He says, so that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold and perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What does he say? He says, the trial of your faith is more valuable than gold. So all the folks who think, I'll do for God and God's going to give me gold, God's getting ready. He may give us something far greater than gold. And that is that the trying our faith that demonstrates that it is real, that demonstrates that it is not mercenary, it is not God paying me off to worship Him, it is not some idol worship where I bring some sacrifice or offering in the spring season so that God blesses me with a bountiful crop. And if I connect all the dots, and I push all the right buttons, and I bring all the right offerings, then nothing but good is going to happen to me. That's a worship of a God who pays us off with His goodness. I don't worship God because of the good things He does. I worship Him because He is good. He does good. He is amazingly good. But He does good because He is good, and that is what we are to worship. And so when we go through times of suffering, we need to be reminded of what that worship is. That's the test that Job is facing. Look back in chapter 1 again. <clears throat> Consider Job's trust. In verse 20, two of the most astounding verses in Scripture. Then Job arose and rent or tore his mantle, his, his outer clothing, he shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. All of those first things are actions of sorrow and grief. And I remind you, especially those of you who are carrying grief right now, and you are experiencing grief, 
You have laid a loved one to rest. You have gone through times of grief. That grief and worship are often co-mingled together. We have this idea that when we come into worship, and let me, let me say, I love joyful worship. I love if God moves in your heart and you're filled with joy, express that joy. That's what we should do. But there are times when it's very difficult for a person who is suffering and a person who is grieving to feel like they can participate in worship. Let me tell you that if you stand there with tears flowing down your face and you can't express a word, you can still worship God and that worship can be mingled with grief. I'm glad that we go through times where grace and grief are mingled together. We experience that suffering and that grief. Job says, I'm gonna, he tears his clothing, that's grief. He shaves his head, that's grief. He falls upon the ground, that's grief. And what does he do? He doesn't gripe, he worships. I'm not saying that we will all automatically be at this point when we go through our time of suffering, but this is where God wants to move us to. God wants to move us from even the concept or idea that we worship him because of what we get out of it, to we worship him because of who he is. And that's where Job is. Notice down in verse 21, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. (laughs) I didn't have a stitch of clothing when I was born, he says, and when I die, I'm not going to take a bit of it with me. As someone put it, you've never seen a U-Haul following a hearse. The Lord gave... Job said, everything I have came from God. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Did Satan get it wrong? It certainly seems so, doesn't it? Job will curse you to your face, he said. Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice over in chapter 2 and verse 10. Job's wife comes to him in the final temptation, asking him to curse God. Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Verse 9, curse God and die. It doesn't necessarily indicate that she was some harsh, evil woman. It seems perhaps that maybe she simply wanted him to have some relief from his suffering. Just go ahead and get it over with. Go ahead and get it done. And he says to her in verse 10, You speak as one of the foolish women. He doesn't call her a fool. He says, you're speaking in a foolish way. You're speaking like one of the foolish women. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not also receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Job's trust. He trusted God. There's three basic, if I could summarize Job's message. Let me do it this way. Number one, we often suffer. We often suffer. That is part of this life. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward, the psalmist said. That's just part of this life. So we often suffer. Uh, Someone has said that we may not suffer as suddenly as Job did, but we will certainly suffer as certainly as Job did. And the greatest suffering, of course, the greatest challenge comes with death. Someone wrote, come he slow or come he fast. It is but death that comes at last. So we're all going to go through those challenges and those trials. We sometimes suffer. 
We often suffer. Number two, we sometimes understand. Sometimes we'll understand what God is doing when He's doing it. Sometimes when God is chastening, we know what He's doing. There was never a time that I can recall when my parents chastened me that I wasn't clearly aware of what was taking place. Can I get an amen from some of you who've been chastened as a child? Apparently more of y'all need to be chastened. I'm like, we knew what was going on and we knew why. So there's times, there's times when we get through the end and we look back and we understand, God, I see that's why you were doing it. Sometimes we understand, sometimes we don't. But thirdly, we can always trust. We can always trust, and that's what Job did. You see the faith in his statement? The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Whatever God chooses to do. Some people say that that's blind faith. It's not blind. It is faith and trusting in a God that we know is a good God. And if he's worthy of our worship, then he's worthy of our trust. Consider Job's triumph in this, lastly. Verse 22 of chapter 1. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Chapter 2 and verse 10, in all this did not Job sin with his lips. Isn't it interesting that the thing that Job was concerned that his children might do when he offered offerings for them, he was afraid that they might curse God in their hearts. That was his concern. And what is it that Satan says Job will do? Job's not genuine. Job's faith is not real. God, he will curse you to your face. And yet, what does it say that Job did not do? In all of this, he did not charge God foolishly. He did not curse God, even when his wife encouraged him to. And he did not sin with his lips. That word foolishly is the word for worthless or wrongdoing. He did not accuse God of doing something wrong. That's what we do when we start saying, well, this shouldn't be happening to me. I shouldn't have to go through this. By saying it should not have happened, we're saying, God, you have brought something into my life. You have allowed something into my life that should not have taken place. It is pointless, it is worthless, and it is foolish. And Job says, I'm not going to say that. By saying that, Job indicates his understanding and belief that God has a higher purpose. There's some purpose in what God is doing, even when we don't understand. So we may not always understand, but we can always trust. Because God has a... To say that God has a purpose does not mean that your suffering will be insignificant. Sometimes when Christians say this, especially when a person is going through suffering, and they hear, oh, there's a purpose to it, and we seem to get the idea that that means it's insignificant. No, suffering will be significant. Suffering is suffering. Suffering is not joyful. Suffering is not fun. If suffering was fun, they wouldn't call it suffering. They'd call it fun. But it's suffering. So to say that there's a purpose, to say there's some plan of God, is not to say it's not genuine and it's not real. It just simply means 
that God has a high purpose in it. What is this purpose and what do we understand? How do we come to understand suffering? The book of Job is an extreme book. Job is the wealthiest man. Job is the greatest man. All of this, Job has the greatest suffering that comes on him. But in all of that, in all that extreme, Job is only a shadow of a greater sufferer. He is only a foreshadowing of a man who was not just blameless, but was sinless. And he was a shadow of a man who was not just the greatest in one region and all the East. He was the greatest in human history. He was a man who also became naked and degraded and shamed. The story of Job, as we consider Job, it's not to know more about Job. It is the story of the greater story of Jesus Christ, who suffered the greatest suffering that could ever be suffered on our behalf. And he is the high priest who has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. and was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He suffered on our behalf. We read the book of Job and we think of Jesus who suffered the depths of suffering for our sins. And that's the, that's the great understanding as we go through suffering to know that Christ has suffered on our behalf. He has suffered the greatest of separation. He has suffered the greatest punishment. He has suffered the greatest torment all on our behalf. And what has he done? Because of the cross, that changes everything. Instead of looking at the book of Job with a sense of fear, well, what if this happened to me? What if all these terrible things happened to me? What if Satan was loosed on me? I'm reminded that the cross changes everything. We live after the cross. Christ has triumphed in it over the principalities. He has conquered the power of the death. He has destroyed the works of the devil. And the cross changes everything. In fact, the cross will save us from the greatest suffering of all, and that is eternal suffering in hell. And Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf. So as we go through suffering and we go through challenges, as many of you are, there are many who are suffering right now and facing suffering. Some are grieving over family members who have passed away. Some are grieving over the the trials and the challenges that loved ones are facing. Some are dealing with depression. Some are facing physical suffering. Let me say to you from the example of Job that points us to the person of Christ, you may not always understand, but you can always trust. Because the God who loves us and is good enough to send His own Son for the greatest suffering imaginable is the same God who loves us. And the same God who has a purpose in the suffering of His Son to redeem many has a purpose in our suffering to accomplish great glory to Himself and great good for us. You can't always understand, but you can always trust. Corey ten Boom, the Dutch Christian that, whose family helped and hid Jews in the, during the Holocaust, they were thrown into, they were betrayed by a... Um, 
by a spy, by an informant, turned over to the Gestapo. Her father, her aging father died in Nazi prison. Her older sister died. and She saw them die. She knew of their deaths. And all the challenges her sister said to her before she died, she said, Corey, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. She would use an illustration of a tapestry weaving. On one side would be a beautiful crown, and on the back side would be all the mangled and tangled weaving that made that crown possible. And she would hold that up, and she would use this poem to describe God's work in our life. And as she would talk about the things that took place in her life, she would say this. She said, heaven doesn't have panic, only plans. When tragedy and suffering comes into our life, sometimes we panic. What are we going to do? How is this going to turn out? Heaven has no panic, only plans. But she would share this poem. My life is just a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot change the color. He works most steadily. Oft times he weaves in sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper but I the underside. Until the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly, then God will roll back the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads, some of you are having some dark threads woven into your life. The dark threads are as needful in the skillful weaver's hand as the golden threads of silver that he has patterned in his plan. You're suffering this morning or you're suffering for someone you can't always understand but you can always trust god will not do anything worthless or foolish whatever the outcome he will bring his glory and your good so give your suffering to him and find the beauty in the dark threads of god